0: Welcome to Episode 50, the Big Five-O, Carpe Five-O, a milestone episode of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Last week, we started the show with an audio clip and then asked John to comment on it. And I like that approach, so I'm going to do it again. We're still talking about the lockdowns, the Justice Centre lawsuits against the provincial governments implementing them, and that's what our opening clip speaks to. This is British Columbia Premier Horgan at a news conference on December 15th, talking about increasing enforcement of their unconstitutional measures. Here he is.
1: But in order for us to get there, we need to make sure that those issues that we put in place are being uh, acted upon by British Columbians. The vast majority of our citizens are focusing on keeping themselves well, keeping their families safe, and doing the right thing for their communities. But there are those who are not prepared to bend a little bit in their personal lives to the benefit of all of us collectively. And so consequently, we're going to be beefing up enforcement on public health orders over the next couple of weeks. Ensuring that community safety investigators, conservation officers and others that are doing the work of people of British Columbia, whether it be in, uh, in labour, whether it be in uh, workplace safety, whether it be uh, anywhere where you have an authority over citizens, we're going to ask you to be working with law enforcement to ensure that our public health orders are, are in place and being uh, acted upon. That means holding rule breakers accountable That means ensuring that the fines that we levy are collected. Certainly, everyone has a right to appeal. Everyone has a right to due process. But once that due process has been finalized, if you do not pay the fines, we will send collections after you. This is serious, this is not a lark. This is not something we do lightly. Those who do not want to obey the rules that the rest of us are following will have to pay the consequences. I don't believe you can put a price on public safety particularly as we come to this very difficult second wave of a global pandemic okay John what do you think of that well it's pretty scary I mean this
2: is a very severe loss of freedom uh, churches are closed entirely the Justice Center is representing uh, various uh, congregations and individuals uh, our staff lawyers are in touch with uh, pastors on a daily basis, uh, we're in touch with um, some Muslim and Sikh and, Sikh and uh, Jewish uh, leaders as well, and uh, we are uh, gearing up to file a court action in uh, in British Columbia. We hope to have that filed uh, by Christmas. We're working around the clock. Uh, what what some people don't realize is to to do a, a good, proper, well-founded, well-based court application does take, uh, you know, at least dozens, but but often hundreds of hours of work to line up the evidence, line up the witnesses. You have to have the evidence lined up ahead of time in order to write a proper statement of claim or a proper originating application. And, uh, you know, it's easy to just slap something together and walk into court and, uh, you know, look at assembling your evidence uh, afterwards, but then you get into a situation where you just have to amend your your court papers anyway because uh, they, they have to match up precisely with the evidence. So the lawyers are working around the clock. We have sued Alberta. We've sued Manitoba. So we will be suing British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. If not before Christmas, then uh, it'll be in early
0: January. hmm Well, you noticed in there he said that you have your right to your day in court there. and. Uh... You know, everybody has. Yeah, I noticed he didn't mention anything about the Charter of Rights uh, and Freedoms, though.
1: Is that no, surprising? it's pretty.
2: It's pretty sick and twisted how these politicians uh, seem to forget that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is the supreme law of the land. Uh, as I said at a at a rally in in Calgary, speaking publicly at a rally in Calgary, in case the police are listening. But I mean, they videotape me anyway. They know it. Speaking in Calgary on December the 5th, I pointed out that uh, Jason Kenney, Alberta Premier, is not above the Charter. Our Chief Medical Officer, Dina Hinshaw, is not above the Charter. The Calgary Police Service is not above the Charter. And the same thing uh, applies to Premier Horgan in British Columbia and all of the Premiers and the Prime Minister. Uh, They're not above the Charter.
0: But when it, it all sound like they're getting pretty hot about it these days, you know, like they're, the threats are increasing, like they're really, everybody's, uh, I don't know, they, it's like we've hit some kind of second wave panic that, uh, you know, we wanted to avoid. At any rate, sorry, you go ahead. Well, just a few points I could,
2: uh, that, that I'll comment on in uh, Premier Horgan's clip there. You know, we hear this rhetoric again, you know, keeping their families safe and doing the right thing. Well, these, these public health orders are bad for public health. They're, there's going to be, we're working on another paper. Um, we've got an abundant amount of evidence that loneliness is bad for your health. Isolation is bad for your health. Uh, let me just stop there on those two. We've got orders that uh, all across Canada to varying degrees of, of severity, it's illegal to meet meet up with, uh, with friends or family members, even at Christmas time. So that is loneliness and isolation that is government, opposed, uh, government imposed. Um, looking at uh, relying only on Zoom and Skype so that you're interacting only with two-dimensional images is also bad for your health. Uh, yeah, contacting, p- with, uh, contacting people only through Zoom and Skype. If, if you're limited to that, that's bad for your health. Anxiety and depression are bad for your health, Poverty is bad for your health. Um, lack of exercise, which tends to happen when gyms close uh, and team sports are banned. And of course, I know the argument well, you know, you could just do push ups and sit ups at home. But the fact of the matter is, uh, we are creatures of habit. And there's a lot of people you take away their, their basketball, volleyball, team sports, uh, soccer, uh, racquetball, squash, martial arts, you name it. You take that out of their lives. And most people are not going to be able to very quickly adapt and the following morning, start doing push-ups, sit-ups, and jumping jacks, and, and watching you know aerobics videos on the television. A lot of people are just not going to be doing that because it's it's not what they love. I mean, if you love bowling, uh, it's an activity that Phil Horgan and Bonnie Henry and BC have taken away from my 80-year-old mother who was uh, enjoying that. That's illegal now. But whether it's it's bowling or volleyball or whatever, you love it, you enjoy it. Um, I don't know if there's scientific research on how uh, killing joy is bad for your health, uh, but I'm sure that the studies and reports are out there on that point as well. So these are joy-killing measures. And the underlying ideology is a materialistic ideology that sees our bodies as being Infinitely more important than our our minds and our spirits and our souls. In fact, it's it's an ideology that that says that we are just uh, clump of cells, and uh, our our purpose, primary purpose, is to stay alive as long as possible. But ironically, this materialistic uh, ideology—this is not science. This is ideology. When you've got government policy that. Takes uh, meaningful human interaction and joy and friendship, and uh, connecting with people in person makes that illegal. It's an ideology that says that the body is uh, infinitely more important, and that's a that, that's a belief. And uh, but but the irony is that that these measures th- this this ideology that our physical bodies matter more than our souls and spirits and minds, ironically, the physical outcomes are terrible because uh, loneliness is bad for your physical health. Isolation is bad for your physical health. Uh, Dealing with people only by Zoom and Skype is bad for your physical health. Excessive alcohol consumption is bad for your physical health. Uh, Staying indoors all the time is bad for your physical health. Uh, lack of exercise, obviously, is bad for your physical health. When you look at the various killers, uh, heart disease, stroke, cancer, the literature says that one of the things that is help, helpful as preventative medicine, not a guarantee, but helpful, is physical exercise. Physical exercise will reduce your chances of getting uh, a heart attack, a stroke, cancer, etc., Poverty is bad for your health. Uh, That's, again, your physical health. Depression is bad for your physical health. Anxiety is bad for your physical health. Not getting hugs is bad for your physical health. There's literature on that. Singing is good for your health. There's actually scientific literature on that. Well, singing is illegal because uh, the politicians have put us uh, into a state of permanent perpetual fear over a virus whose death toll, in the broader context, and you should be looking at the big picture, is in the same range as the death toll from the annual flu. And that's not my opinion. That's the government data and statistics. Uh, Socializing is good for your physical health. Friendships is good for your physical health. And yes, you can uh, maintain friendships via Zoom and Skype. I had a very good experience myself. A, A very good friend of mine moved away from Calgary, got transferred by his company Lived in Europe for two years, the United States for two years, then moved back to Calgary. During those four years, we had fantastic Skype uh, discussions. But that's different. He lived in Europe and the United States while I was in Calgary, so I'm not trashing Zoom and Skype and telephone. But what we've got here are government orders that 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 say like to to see your your own. Uh, Maybe you've got a brother or sister that lives in a city that's an hour away. You're not allowed to see them over Christmas. Your kids and their kids, the cousins, cannot interact with each other in person. Uh, to to assume that that's just not good. Uh, to to assume that that has no impact on your physical health. Uh, playing team sports obviously is good for your physical health. Uh, that's illegal. Uh, performing a play on stage for a live audience is good for your physical health. So even so, I'm I'm attacking this on in two ways. That that first of all, it is ideology, not science, that would say that our physical body and not dying and not dying of COVID, uh, to to elevate that to supremacy over our souls, minds, and spirits. That is ideology, and it's not science. That's my first point. My second point is, even if we discard that ideology argument, even if our sole focus was physical health living as long as possible, not dying of, of, of cancer and stroke and heart disease, even if that was our, our sole uh, objective, uh, these measures are bad for our physical health. So Premier Phil Horgan and Bonnie Henry are a threat to public health by way of these measures. Uh, they are harming public health by way of these lockdown measures.
0: Right, yeah. In fact, I think, uh, I don't know whether we want to play it right now, but we do have a, a short clip from March uh, where we have Bonnie Henry talking about the lack of science for the lockdowns. You, uh, <laughs> I think I'll play I saw it.
2: the clip. You should play that. Yeah,
0: I will. Here's BC's Provincial Health Officer Bonnie Henry at a news conference on March 31st of this year answering a question from reporter Sandy Hall of Fox 1070 about the varying numbers of groups that can gather under different restrictions in different places. Roll it.
3: Yes, hi. Uh, I'm asking a question today about the varying numbers of crowd sizes that have been applied across provinces uh, in Canada. We're getting questions about it. why is it 5 in Ontario and 50 here, and are we looking at uh, reducing the sizes, given that people keep breaking that?
4: Yeah, so we also had that discussion on our special advisory committee uh, call on Sunday across the country. And, you know, it really is about um, right now all gatherings are off the table. We're all in that place where any time we get together with more than our household members or our families, we're putting ourselves at risk. And particularly if we're going to be in contact with people who are older or more likely to have severe illness. So when, when I talk about 50, that's for uh, you know, mass gatherings for events for things that are happening in the community, and I, I am reticent to go. The, none of these are, are based on on scientific evidence. There's some evidence in um, that some modelling that Alberta has done that shows that 18, if you have less than 18, your probability of having a a case may be less, and so they went with 15. But the bottom line is, none of this really is based on science. It's based on our best effort to ensure that we're not having um, events like large conferences or groups or church meetings.
0: So there you have it. From the Sainted Bonnie Henry herself. These lockdowns are not based on science. A little surprising, eh, John? Yes, thank you, Bonnie Henry. Uh that's uh that's exactly correct. These
2: there's no science behind these lockdowns. It is pure speculation. Now, there are times in life when we uh, often in fact in life we do make decisions based on speculation. Like you want to get an item at the store before it closes at 11 and you know you're not on scientific grounds as to whether you have quite enough time to to drive there or walk there or, or or whatever there's thousands of examples in our daily life like not everything is a scientific decision we make estimates we make guesses uh we make you know probability calculations all the time uh i read somewhere that we we actually make 30 every person makes about 33,000 decisions a day if you include all the tiny ones you know, should I take my shoes off for the very short walk across the kitchen to grab an item on the counter or not? I mean there's all these decisions. So speculation is not bad. and I, I suppose there's some speculation involved in the formulation of laws that you know you don't always know 100% for sure what the impact is. or you know that it'll be a mix, but you don't know how the mix is how the chips are going to fall down with positive and negative impacts. But to pretend that this is scientific is intellectually dishonest and I'm really thankful, that uh, at least for a brief moment, uh, bon- Bonnie Henry there was was very honest in saying that there's no science behind these lockdown measures. I need to correct and clear. I've inadvertently uh, I've tarnished the fine reputation of a wonderful lawyer in Toronto by the name of Phil Horgan, uh, who is a strong <laughs> advocate. He, F- Phil Horgan is a strong advocate for constitutional rights and freedoms, and has been before the Supreme Court of Canada numerous times. He is based in Toronto. He is on the, uh, he's one of the benchers that governs the Law Society of Ontario and was elected by his colleagues on the uh, uh, stopping this uh, totalitarian statement of principles that the, the, the progressive social justice warriors made it a requirement uh, as a condition for practicing law in Ontario. Every lawyer was required to make uh, a written declaration that they were going to promote equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so, uh, fortunately, they got this repealed thanks to Phil Horgan and a lot of other people working together. The BC Premier's name is John Horgan. (laughs) And so, uh, no apologies to the BC Premier, but I apologize to the Toronto uh, lawyer for uh, referring to to him as the uh, Premier of British Columbia, which Phil Horgan is not.
0: Okay, that's a rather <clears throat> long correction, John. Okay, so now we got to remember what we were talking about. Oh yeah, Bonnie Henry, lack of science, lockdowns. I think yeah. there's lots of other people that have said there's no science behind the lockdowns. It's just that there's a person that's actually actively imposing them right now. We're essentially locking us down over Christmas, you know. So. We're experiencing it's the second wave of
2: lockdowns. Uh, yeah. Second second wave of COVID. Again, it's important to look at the big picture. Some components of which include the fact that every year over 300,000 canadians die 25,000 canadians die every month on average all 25,000 deaths are sad and you know the the 1,000 covid deaths in a particular month are very sad and so are the other uh, 24,000 deaths from uh things like the cancelled surgeries and and suicides and uh Old age i mean we we die of all kinds of things. every death is sad, and i can 't stand how some people uh when you try to take uh, when you take a hard look at reality uh parts of which are painful and difficult, and then you get accused of being callous well it 's not callous to recognize the fact. That, uh, uh, that that every death is sad, and and deaths from um, cancelled surgeries and suicides and drug overdoses and all the lockdown deaths uh, are just as sad as a COVID death, but maybe more sad, in the sense that they are more preventable, because the government data and again not my opinion, uh, in Alberta is one example. Ninety seven percent of COVID deaths in Alberta are amongst people with one, two, three or more serious comorbidities. So you've got the average age of, of death is 82, 83. You've got Canada-wide three quarters of COVID deaths are in nursing homes amongst people who are already in uh, the last 12 months of their life on average. Should we take reasonable precautions to protect these people? Yes, absolutely. You do whatever you can to uh, make sure that the the virus does not get into the nursing homes. And on that front, the politicians have failed miserably. And instead of protecting these people in nursing homes, they're killing people through lockdown measures. And we've got the increased deaths by way of cancelled surgeries, uh, delayed MRIs, delayed uh, cancer diagnosis, delayed CT scans, um, hundreds of additional suicides, hundreds of additional drug overdoses. So the lockdowns are killing people and a lot of those deaths are preventable. Not all of them. I mean, apart from lockdowns, there are people that commit suicide and there are people who die of drug overdoses. Uh, but the increases in suicides and drug overdoses is inexcusable. So there is no, there is no second wave of the virus, uh, when you, still compare the numbers to um, to April, May. But even if the October or November or December numbers get up to the April, May level, you're back to this reality that if you have an 85-year-old in a nursing home who has emphysema, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, in that context, uh, people in nursing homes do die. One of the things that we'll be looking at is, because um, we're continuing to research this, what are the death rates in nursing homes in 2020 compared to 2019, 2018, 2017? Are they dramatically different? Because
0: uh-huh. you're going <laughs> to you know, take that number that those death rates and start breaking them down into age groups and nursing homes as well. Is that it? Yeah.
2: Well, listening, okay. li- listening to John Horgan and Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, or listening to Jason Kenney and Dina Hinshaw in BC, or listening to, you know, premiers uh, uh, Ford and Pallister and, and and so on. The way that they're behaving, it's as if you know, prior to prior to COVID, nobody ever died.
0: It's, well, apparently, it, that's it, what the it, stats it, say too. Now,
2: it's it, so. it's this hysteria that you know we need to, we need to take a deep breath if we care about human life and and if we are compassionate, we need to take a deep breath and ask ourselves the question. To what extent is it even within our control to um, to, to, to get rid of any virus?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a big That's question. True. There are
2: medical doctors who have stated publicly that uh, there's no way to stop COVID-19 from being out and about amongst the population. Unless you had a total 100% shutdown of everything, including the Walmarts and the liquor stores and the marijuana stores. Uh, unless you had a total 100% shutdown, you cannot stop the virus from spreading. And the only way to bring an end to it is um, by having enough healthy people. Uh, and we're talking 90% of the population is not going to be harmed by COVID, 90%. Okay, mm. so only 10% uh, are is it, is it a, a threat, not, not that 10% of the population would die. But only 10% are in the vulnerable category where they would uh, suffer death or suffer uh, permanent irreparable physical harm. That's 10% of the population. So there are medical doctors who say that we have to allow the virus to be out and about amongst the 90% of us who face zero risk. And once once the 90% kind of absorb it, then the other 10% are going
0: to be safe. Mm, okay, and notice we haven't even talked about the tests nowadays that are that are getting so a lot more traction. I I noted uh, that uh, the Rebel Media did a great report on uh, the PCR tests, and I'll leave a link to that down below.
2: And, Please do. Uh, yeah, the the Rebel does excellent work.
0: Yeah, it's it's about a fifteen minute report. They uh, they speak to a doctor. And uh, who, who's a known critic and actually written a book on the subject. So I'll, I'll make sure that's linked below. And uh, speaking of tests, uh, my mother's fine. Thanks for asking.
2: Good. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned last week, Kevin, <laughs> that your mother had had a COVID test
0: and uh, yeah. came back negative. That's right. It, the only, only little odd bit about it was that we were in a complete panic when we checked the results. It said canceled. And uh, we didn't know what the heck that meant. And I finally got got a hold of the doctor, and uh, the doctor looked a little, or the assistant to the doctor looked a little closer. And apparently, they had entered it as canceled, and then they entered the results below that. So, uh, and apparently, this happens quite a bit. So, if there is anybody out there that has suffered the same kind of confusion, uh, just take a a a little closer look, and uh, you'll have uh, your results.
2: Anyways. So neither you nor your mom is going to be uh, locked up in your house. Well, of course you are anyway under the lockdown measures. You can't have friends over and you can't visit other friends. So so I ask sincerely, not rhetorically, is there I, – I guess the positive value in the uh, negative result on the COVID test is that uh, your mom does not have COVID. That's, that's yes. a positive. That's a that's you positive. You don't yeah. want her to have COVID. So
0: That's right. So yeah. that's positive. Yeah. It yeah. yeah. has,
2: has little impact on you. Quarantining. I, I guess if 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 she was positive, then uh, you'd have to have your groceries delivered to your house or something. Like you couldn't go yeah, to the store.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I would have had things in place because we did get a quarantine back in the uh, in March. I think we were we were locked down for ten days uh, here because um, <laughs> there was I think my mom had a cough or something like that, and they all freaked out and made us stay in. You know, so I had buddies bringing stuff by and and whatnot. So I was pretty pretty okay. Uh, the interesting thing about that test is that there was a story in the Globe and Mail. I don't know if you remember seeing that about the uh, the the Alberta numbers being taken out of the national average because apparently there was something wrong with the Alberta numbers. They were exaggerated, and I did not quite understand the story. was a little bit confusing. Did you did you see that story at all? Unfortunately, no. I don't know if – I won't say if the numbers are exaggerated
2: or or not, but just the overall climate, the political climate, social climate, cultural climate, the media climate is such that uh, there's a drive and a push to get these numbers up. I mean, the media are loving the clicks that they're getting. I think media want to stay relevant, and uh, I think there'll be a lot fewer people watching the media – if we didn't have all of this hype about you know, COVID being this unusually deadly killer, which again is not true when you just look at the evidence. But if there wasn't all this hype, I think the uh, the media would be getting lower ratings. But there too, there's, there, there's an irony there because when you destroy the economy, there's an awful lot of businesses. Uh, when things get tough, one of the first places people cut is advertising. Because if you're cutting your business down to the bone – uh, advertising is kind of a you know a future investment you're you're hoping that what you spend on advertising will pay off in increased sales but when you're between a rock and a hard place uh, a lot of businesses cut advertising so because the lockdowns are destroying the economy and cr- causing bankruptcies it means that the businesses are paying less for advertising which means that the media get less money because the media are very 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 dependent on advertising dollars So they might be getting extra dollars now because there's a lot of clicks because the whole population's panicked. So they're, you know, paying attention. And then the media show their viewership stats and and, uh, data and statistics to the uh, potential uh, purchasers of advertising who then pay for advertising. But, you know, that's also going to spiral downwards if we continue to destroy the economy the way that we are right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I note that uh, you've got a column, you said this to me, you've got a column coming out right away on the vaccines. Is that uh, correct?
2: I'm still not done my, my research, but there's a telling clip, which uh, the deputy chief medical officer in Ontario stated publicly
0: that uh, those who are vaccinated might still be contagious. Okay. Uh, this is Ontario's associate chief officer of health, Barbara Yaffe on December 14th. Maybe I could just sure. add to that. I think um,
3: the studies have shown that the vaccine is, is very effective in preventing disease, in preventing people from becoming ill or seriously ill. Um, they haven't yet been able to show whether it prevents infection. So even if somebody gets vaccinated, they may, they may have an asymptomatic infection. Uh, so, they could still be infectious to others we 're still going to learn, and it may be that that not is not the case, but currently we don 't have that evidence. so even when somebody 's vaccinated, they need to protect themselves and others uh, from from spreading the infection so uh, and Of course, as dr williams said it 's going to take months before we uh, end up with a significant percentage of the population vaccinated. Usually for infectious diseases, we're looking 70, 80% of the population has to be vaccinated for what we call herd immunity. We're not going to get there with this vaccine until probably the summer.
2: And we could talk about this more in the next episode, but the mm. uh, the vaccine companies themselves have said the vaccine can protect the in- individual recipient from COVID, but it does not necessarily make you not contagious. And that begs the whole question why in Ontario are the uh, the premier and the uh, chief medical officer uh, already talking about forcing people to take vaccines? Uh, the uh, the premier and chief medical officers have have said that if uh, uh, well we're not gonna we're not gonna you know hold you down we're not gonna have four guys in white coats hold you down on the ground and forcibly inject you we're not going to do that. However, if you don't get the vaccine then um, you might be restricted from traveling or going to a movie theater or going to the mall, sending your kids to public schools. These types of, of sanctions, which are part of mandatory vaccines, meaning that different from a forced vaccine, forced vaccine would be a law that says we are going to physically hold you down and inject you with something that you do not wish to be injected with. That's forced vaccinations, mm. okay? Mandatory vaccinations is um where the government says – we're not going to physically hold you down and force you to take it. However, if you're not vaccinated, well, you can't fly on an airplane, you can't send your kids to school, you can't go to the mall, you can't go shopping. Now, that would be a terrifying prospect. But what is interesting and terrifying is that we've got the uh, drug companies and Ontario's premier and Ontario's chief, uh, chief medical officer talking about this stuff when we also have this, it's been put out there that uh, if you get the vaccine, it does not make you uncontagious. So you could have a Mm -hmm. vaccine and still spread it to uh, other people, even though you've had the vaccine. If that's true, why would there be any discussion about mandatory vaccinations? Because the whole idea of mandatory vaccinations is, well, everybody has to get it so that we acquire this herd immunity, as though we couldn't acquire it Uh, without properly protecting the vulnerable and letting the 90% of us who are not vulnerable uh, earn money to pay for the nursing homes and pay for the healthcare system.
0: Well, all I can say about that is it seems like they're determined to keep the fear going. I mean, remember, it was two weeks to flatten the curve, and now it's, you know, four weeks over Christmas. And, and, you know, oh, we got to get a vaccine. And now that we got a vaccine, oh, that's not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it uh, it looks like it. it sounds like a way of extending the fear at this point. Anyway, I don't know. Well, as as
2: uh, BC Premier John Horgan said, there's no price on public safety. In in a, in a perverse sense, uh, certainly his uh, his behavior, his mentality, and the laws that he is imposing on British Columbians uh, is is very much uh, consistent with that ideology that there's no price on public safety. The big flaw is that uh, these measures are dangerous to public health uh, because, again, putting aside this whole uh, ideological problem that these laws are not scientific, but they're based on an ideology that we are nothing more than a clump of cells. Uh, We don't have uh, souls and minds and spirits, or if we do, they're worth a lot less than our physical bodies. But even apart from that ideology, it is bad. uh, Delayed cancer diagnosis and uh, lack of hugs and physical contact... Uh, prohibition on singing, prohibition on socializing, curtailing of friendships, barring of team sports, performing a play on a on a stage for a live audience—you know that's that's illegal. Getting together with a bunch of other guys and watching sports, or guys and gals—I know women watch sports too—to uh, to attack and undermine uh, all of those things and make them illegal is actually bad for our physical health. Hmm. Right. So, so on a real level, there's no concern. There's no serious concern for public health uh, that these measures are bringing about, uh, and, and and then you have the the huge problem that uh,
0: they're useless for for saving lives. Okay, because well, we need to back- protect the vulnerable, and they're not doing it. Yeah. Okay on the on the mandatory uh, vaccine uh, aspect of it. Can they actually bar people from doing that without a vaccine? Like, you don't have, you know, like say a person has a disease, and they say, "Well, okay, uh, you can't go in there, you can't, you can't participate in this activity because you have a disease." Can they do that based on the charter?
2: It, yes and no. It'd be the same test that we are arguing in court or using in court on the lockdown measures. So it's basically four points. If if a government in Canada passed a law saying everybody must get the vaccine and parents must vaccinate their children and if not you lose certain rights and privileges you lose your uh, you lose your your freedom to travel on an airplane or to travel on public transit you can't send your kids to a public school you can't go into a shopping mall etc etc if that's a law that's passed and it would most certainly be challenged in court you know if not by the justice center by other people i mean i can't see that not being challenged what the government would have to prove is first of all that the vaccine is is uh intended to protect us from a very deadly illness uh deadly because it kills a large number of people or deadly because uh once you get it there there's no medication for it you're just they have to prove it's a serious problem okay you have to prove that that's the first point Then they have to prove that the law to take away rights and freedoms from citizens who are not getting the vaccine, that that is the least intrusive method of accomplishing the goal. So in other words, if there's other ways to accomplish the goal, other than those harsh measures of of barring people from shopping malls and airplanes and public schools, they have to pursue a less intrusive method, if possible. Thirdly, there has to be a rational connection between the law and the goal. So what that means, for example, is if vaccinations do not result in making people uh, uncontagious, I don't know if that's the correct word, but basically, if you're still contagious after getting the vaccine, (laughs) that would be a lack of a direct connection between the law and the goal. The goal is to save us from some deadly disease. Infections, yes. Yes. But if if taking the vaccine uh, does does not take away being contagious, then there's no uh, rational connection there. So the government has to prove a a rational connection, which would be completely undermined if indeed taking the vaccine only protects the individual but does not make the individual non-contagious. And then lastly, and possibly the most important point is that the onus would be on the government to say that the benefits of saving people from this deadly disease are greater than the harms of stripping away human rights and fundamental freedoms from individuals and taking away from them their right to live freely in a society as citizens and be able to do the same things that other people do, like Go fly on an airplane, or go to a shopping mall, or send their kids to public school. So that's mm-hmm. the last point. So that would be the test. So the government could win on a mandatory vaccination thing. So if if they proved that it was a, a really serious, deadly disease. So, and I don't think COVID nineteen. When you compare it to, you know, tuberculosis, and compare it to so many other conditions and causes of death. I don't know why it would stand out uh, amongst other things as as being uh, unusually deadly, again, based on the evidence and the data. But anyway, to win in court, the government have to prove uh, this is like the bubonic plague or Ebola or something. It's a really deadly killer. The vaccine is actually going to save lives. These mandatory laws are the least intrusive ways of achieving the result. You know, there are no options. I mean, nothing like, you know, public education or, uh, right, it's got to be force of law. And then lastly, the government would have to prove that the benefits of the mandatory vaccination laws outweigh the harms that are going to be caused to uh, people. So
0: there you go. Okay. All right. Well, as you say, that's the the same sort of test as the things that you're bringing forward right now maybe we could just quickly talk about the structure of the lawsuits that you've filed that we've filed right now in alberta and manitoba and we've got the other provinces coming up as fast as you guys can crank them out what is the structure then you get you're saying that the government has to prove these things you're taking that to court and the government has to respond by proving them or do they just say well no we're fine (laughs) I mean, well, well, how does it work? What do you do? Are you charging them with something, suing them for doing something? I'm not sure the mechanism because I'm not a lawyer uh, for, for the lawsuits, you know, so. So the
2: lawsuits are seeking a court declaration that the lockdown measures are an unjustified violation of our rights and freedoms. Mm -hmm. I anticipate uh, that the governments are going to admit that these lockdown measures do violate our charter freedoms to move and travel and assemble and associate and worship. These are clearly violations of our charter freedoms of conscience and religion, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of association, charter section seven, right to life, liberty, and security of the person. I don't think the governments would put up much of a fight and say, oh, no, 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 these lockdown measures don't violate charter right. freedoms. Okay. Uh, if they do put up a fight, I think they would, well, if <laughs> anybody who predicts a court outcome is a fool. So I won't make predictions. I would just sure. say governments will have a very uphill fight trying to argue that these are not violations of charter rights and freedoms. So the big battle will be under section one of the charter, which says that the charter protects these rights and freedoms subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as may be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So that's where you get the four-part test that COVID is an unusually deadly illness. Uh, The measures are actually going to save lives. Uh, The measures are the least intrusive option available to the government. And the benefits of the measures outweigh the harms of the measures.
0: Well, do you have to present alternatives when you're making those? Like you have to say, okay, well, this, this isn't the least intrusive. This is actually, least this is less intrusive and effective or whatever. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it works. Also, I might as well add my other question on here right now. Suppose you get that declaration. Is that the end of it? Then they got to do what the court says, or can they say, well, I guess we'll just pass another law, make it uh, you know, a little more solid. I'm not sure. I mean is that the Well they can
2: they can respond in any number of ways uh, one yeah. they could appeal it right because this is going in at the uh, what's called the superior court so you've yeah. so you've got a provincial court and then you've got the superior court in British Columbia it's known as the the BC Supreme Court in uh, Alberta Saskatchewan Manitoba it's known as the Court of Queen's Bench and in Ontario it's the Ontario Superior Court of Justice I believe in which we'll be filing if one or more governments lose at the uh, at the trial level, and we certainly hope they'll lose in all five, they can appeal it to their own uh, court of appeal. Afterwards, it could go to the Supreme Court of Canada. So there's a legal process in place. Another option is that they can use Section 33 of the Charter and use the Notwithstanding Clause and say, well, notwithstanding this court ruling that our laws violate these charter freedoms we are keeping these laws on the books in any event. So they could use the, the notwithstanding clause to opt out. And another proposal, uh, and I think they could do all three of these. Another one is they could write new laws if they lost at the trial level and they could have less restrictive measures. Uh, they could say, okay, we're going to tone this down a bit or we're going to you know focus more on protecting uh, the vulnerable in nursing homes and uh, we're going to focus less on... Locking up ninety percent of the population that faces absolutely no threat from COVID, so they can change their laws. They can appeal. They can use a notwithstanding uh, clause, or if, and I think they could do all three. I'd have to get back to you as to whether using the notwithstanding clause uh, and if you can do that and also appeal a court ruling at the same time. You you probably could. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a big uh, it's a big charter case. But the great thing is, for the first time, the governments are going to have to provide evidence in court. And I'm sure they're going to try to you know, uh, engage in fear-mongering inside the courtroom as well. But they're going to look bad doing it because what's going on now is the politicians do not answer questions about deaths from cancelled surgeries and how many people have died. They do not answer questions about lockdown harms to the best of our knowledge, they are making very little effort to even try to find out about lockdown harms. It's willful blindness. There were um, four primary researchers and and a bunch of secondary researchers working on our paper, uh, Flying Blind is the title of the paper, uh, released in early December. And there is, we tried so hard to come up with government data, government statistics on lockdown harms and the federal and provincial governments are not even trying to make a serious effort to fully uncover all of these lockdown harms. They're not even trying. When they get into court, uh, that's going to show up and they're not going to look very good because uh, one of our arguments is that that these lockdowns are killing more people than they're saving. Mm -hmm. And if the governments walk in and and they have not done their best – to, to tabulate this stuff, when they they did do their best to frighten the population with these uh, you know crazy wild models back in March and April, predicting uh, you know a- astronomical numbers of deaths based on the false predictions of Neil Ferguson of, of Imperial College. So they have done modeling on COVID deaths. They haven't done any modeling, to our knowledge, on deaths by suicide, deaths from cancelled surgery, deaths from delayed MRIs, deaths from delayed. Uh, CT scans, deaths from suicide, deaths from drug overdoses, and all the bad effects on uh, making it illegal to uh, socialize with people apart from Zoom and
0: Skype. Okay, just a quick note about that. Going back to the Bonnie Henry clip when she was talking about the not being based on science, you mentioned that Alberta had done some modeling on the deaths and whatnot, and made a few predictions with the lockdowns, and she said that wasn't scientific. So if they did this modeling on the harms, uh, presumably that wouldn't be very scientific either. That's all I uh, just want to point out, you know. I mean, it's all speculation, right, isn't it? Although now it we have be... data. Now we have data. Sorry, go ahead.
2: We do. No, but it's it, it, it's a fair point, but what what I'm asking for is to use the same standard because mm-hmm. I, I know what the governments are going to say if you uh, if you try to talk about how Lockdowns are shortening everybody's lifespan by uh, taking all the joy out of our lives by, you know, making it illegal to watch your, your daughter or your granddaughter do a ballet performance that she's been, you know, working towards for a long number of, of months, or, you know, making it illegal to come together and watch a Christmas carol, uh, you know, watch live theater. All, all of that joy killing is. Stands to reason that it's inflicting a lot of harm. Do we have specific scientific data? I mean, we don't have scientific units of joy. We don't have, uh, how, how do you measure scientifically the impact of receiving a hug from a friend? You can't measure that. So you, you, there is some speculation involved. Uh, s- some things you can look at hard numbers. Uh, suicides and drug overdoses are uh, obviously, uh, you can get hard numbers on that. But uh, loneliness and despair. I mean, yeah, I guess you get numbers on increased numbers of people that are going to see uh, counselors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. You, I, no doubt, there, there's a rise in uh, in the number of people that are that are doing that. Hmm. Um, but getting back to the single standard, though, here's here's my point. When they come up with the uh, COVID death modeling. With, uh, for example, Jason Kenney, uh, Premier Jason Kenney in Alberta and, and uh, Chief Medical Officer Dina Hinshaw in Alberta saying back in April that as many as 32,000 Albertans would die of COVID-19, even with lockdown measures in place, right? When the total annual death toll in the province is 27,000, that's all Albertans dying from all causes is 27,000 per year. And they actually said we had a, a risk of 32,000 deaths in Alberta. So that was speculation. Uh, whether the lockdowns do any good is speculation. Whether the lockdowns have saved any lives at all is speculation. Okay, now flip that around. If we're talking about lockdown harms, then you hear these same politicians, uh, I think you will hear them say, oh, well, that's all speculation. All of your stuff about uh, you know mental health and uh, uh, the, the harms of isolation and the harms of loneliness, all of that is speculation. And you know, if somebody dies after their surgery got cancelled, how do you really know that it was because their surgery got cancelled? It could have been for another reason. Like all of a sudden, they take this completely different posture. And that's intellectually dishonest. If, we're gonna, if speculation is the rule, then let's have that as the rule, the rule across the board. So you're speculating about COVID deaths, the numbers. You're speculating about whether the lockdown measures do anything to prevent these deaths. Well, if that's your position, then you also have to pay serious, give ser- serious consideration to speculation about lockdown harms. Conversely, if your standard is science, uh, double-blind, peer-reviewed scientific studies so that you absolutely know for sure, if that's your standard, well, they certainly don't have it on their side, on the pro-lockdown side. There, there's no science there. and it, And if that's okay, Uh, then you can't say that the lockdown harm side of it, that every point must be subjected to this rigorous high standard of double-blind peer-reviewed scientific studies. Pick your standard. The standard is science or, you know, speculation and it stands to reason is your standard.
0: Well, isn't the standard that we're talking about, the one that you guys are facing, isn't it those two words demonstrably justified? I mean, demonstrated how? That's the thing. <clears throat> Presumably, the demonstration will come through hard numbers, right? Not through speculation, I'm assuming. Well, and I look forward to the government producing some hard numbers.
2: Uh, I, I've, I've yet to see any evidence uh, from, from any politician, from any provincial government, that lockdowns have actually saved any lives. There's no evidence. All you have is speculation, you say, well, it stands to reason that if we hadn't had lockdowns, then there would have been far more deaths. Okay, wh- where's the evidence? I mean, anybody can say it stands to reason that such and such.
0: You know, I mean, you look at the numbers that you cited out of your uh, your report and that flying blind, and it was uh, the deaths that actually gone down. Could they throw that in your face and say, hey, look? Well, oh, see- they'll
2: say it's because of lockdowns. They'll say it's because of lockdowns. But that ignores that ignores the demographic evidence, where wow. you have uh, three quarters, uh, and this will vary a little bit province to province. But you've got you've got three quarters. Uh, some say eighty percent of COVID deaths are in nursing homes. The fact of the matter is, and this is not callous to point out a fact, that people going into nursing homes are already elderly and already very sick with one, two, three, four, five serious health problems. And the average lifespan, again, would vary from province to province. But if you go into a nursing home, the average lifespan is 12 months. Some people die after three or six months. Some people might live for three or four years. Uh, But it is end-of-life care. And um, so, I mean, there's data on this, that the COVID deaths are amongst uh, people that are in end-of-life care and that it's got virtually no impact on uh, people in their, uh, their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, negligible impact. Conversely, when it comes to drug overdoses and suicides and uh, canceled surgeries and uh, people dying unnecessarily of cancer because the cancer diagnosis was delayed or because their breast cancer surgery got canceled and postponed and the cancer had lots of time to spread between the date you should have had the surgery and the date that you actually got it, that is impacting people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, as well as people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. So in terms of years of life lost, uh, the uh, lockdown deaths translate into far larger numbers of lost life years or years of life lost, which is a commonly used statistic in the medical community. When you want to evaluate the seriousness of a disease, you look at years of life that are lost, and if it's a disease that does not discriminate against age, so that, you know, a 20-year-old is just as likely to die of it as, uh, as a 70-year-old, then you have a higher impact on population mortality because of years of life lost. Conversely, if there's a disease uh, of which 80% of its victims are people that are within the last 12 months of their life, well, that's sad and tragic, like every death, and it also has uh, very little impact on the population mortality because there's not a severe impact on years of life
0: lost. Okay. I think I got that. <laughs> I suppose uh, there's going to be some study as well. We, we've talked about this uh, in past shows about uh, hours, per productivity, that kind of thing lost as well. And that'll translate into, I don't know, economy and uh, – and uh, I guess just the irreparable damage and uh, how long it's going to take to come back from this thing. I don't know. Uh,
2: I, I hope that economic damage is not irreparable. I'm yeah. not an economist. Uh, economists could give a better answer to that. But I am thankful that you've got organizations like uh, the Fraser Institute, yeah. the yeah. McDonald laurier Institute, the uh, Frontier Centre for Public Policy, the C.D. Howe Institute uh and and other think tanks that are uh, continue to come out with data and statistics on the economic harms uh, as well as how incredibly stupid the some of these government programs have been uh, you know like the uh, the $2000 per month uh, curb or cerb however it's pronounced um yeah. you know disproportionately uh, helping a lot of people that don't need any help while simultaneously failing to provide adequate help for uh, families that simply cannot live on $2,000 a month, right? So that's not a charter violation issue. But the economic harms, you've got these other uh, organizations that are uh, producing studies and papers and reports on that, and I'm thankful that they are. Uh, That's not the focus of the Justice Center because the charter does not uh, protect economic interests or economic prosperity. So it's not something that we're going to uh, tackle directly.
0: Yeah. I, I mentioned that stuff actually, because there were a few stories around floating around this past week about, uh, the government saying things like, well, you know, you still have to pay taxes on that stuff, kiddo, you know? So, uh, there's going to be a few, uh, I guess, uh, surprises coming to people in the, uh, April tax filing date. And, uh, not to mention clawbacks, there's going to be clawbacks as well, and that's going to cause a lot of anxiety because, I don't know, they, it wasn't free money. There's no free money here. So, When
2: you talk about clawbacks, do you simply mean that if you got the curb benefit for six months and you received $12,000 that you have to um, – you have to pay tax on the 12000 Is that what you're referring to? I don't to?
0: know exactly. I just saw the stories. I didn't get into the whole details. And I, I know the clawbacks are coming because some people claimed it was really easy to get the thing, apparently. I never applied myself, but I people told me that uh, it was pretty easy to get. In other words, that what they were doing was just sort of providing emergency relief. And now they're going to go back and review everything. So uh, let's hope uh, only those deserving got it. Otherwise, there's going to be all kinds of anxiety as well. So I'm not completely versed on the details of all that those uh, financial payments because I didn't actually get them myself. Well, I guess we can call an end to this episode 50 of Justice with John Carpe and uh, perhaps mention our holiday schedule as well. We will be coming back with an episode next week, but then we'll be taking time off and coming back in the new year. So we'll do 51 episodes for the year and take a week off and returning in uh, January of 2021, hopefully lockdown free, who knows at that point. Anyways, thanks a lot, John, for this episode and uh, look forward to talking to you next week and then the holiday after that.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. So uh, it'll be good to chat once more before Christmas. And so then after this one, there'll be one more out before December 31st and, then there'll be a a little bit of a lag. And indeed, I I agree with you. I hope that 2021
0: will be the year that we end the lockdowns. Sure. I just wanted to mention that uh, I'm glad you pointed out that talking to two-dimensional John is bad for my health.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't like two-dimensional Kevin either. I wish I could see you
0: in person. (laughs) All right. Take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.